And we are here once again with another episode of the Iron Man podcast, episode 101. So as you guys already know, uh, last night we had our 100 episode celebration. And as you guys know, currently right now I am uploading all of the episodes of my Cloud9 podcast, actually to the podcasting platforms and those episodes and all the seasons will be on there very very soon i just finished uploading season three currently working on uploading season four and then so on and so forth we should have all eight seasons up there uh by saturday and then i can start uploading this show to uh spotify and all the other places you guys love to listen to your podcast and we are joined here today with jay daniel sawyer actually yep and he actually was, is a author. He actually wrote 32 books, actually. So we'll be talking about all his writing adventures and everything that he has done in his life, which is probably, you know, you, you robbed banks, you went to, you know, the UK and you, you took all their food and money, right? And you came back over here. You, know, you look like a cowboy. So you probably went in there and just gunslinged everyone to death. Yeah, right? I live I live up on a mountain in the middle of nowhere and I've spent the day uh, doing welding and uh, pulling dogs out of mud holes. <laughs> Really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So as I do with all my one-on-one guests, uh, tell the audience something you would like them to know right out the gate. Oh, boy. I love stories. I tell them. Mm-hmm. I write books about other people that tell them. I've mm-hmm. been podcasting for 15 or almost 20 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah, Life is a glorious difficult beautiful thing and i'm always looking for something else to challenge me currently i'm on bare land in the middle of nowhere building up building a home up from nothing because hey it was a challenge and i'm learning stuff along the way that'll make it into future books works out Mm. great so let's start here origin story you had a Mm. easy life growing up hard life middle class Um, life I grew it. It was a. It was an interesting bifurcation. My family was very poor, but my father was a college professor. So I grew up among upper class people, but we were not upper class ourselves. Um, I spent a lot of time as a kid auditing classes at my dad's college, and that both made me uh, rapaciously curious and completely impatient with the school experience. So I was a terrible student, but I was always having fun adventures. Um, and, uh, one thing led to another. I wound up in independent film for a while. And then I was a videographer in the music industry in San Francisco. Um, then I wound up, uh, involved with hippies for a while and I've sort of traveled the world getting to know interesting people. Um, and currently I'm up on a mountain in the middle of nowhere. So you said you used to live in San Francisco. I imagine you couldn't even see what's happened to that city now oh god oh no i i left exactly at the right time about two months after i left i started seeing headlines and i was like oh i got out just in time but yeah it breaks my heart seeing what's happened both to san francisco and to the bay area as a whole um one of my one of my novel series my clark lantham mystery series Mm -hmm. takes place in and around the bay area and the area itself is a character and so now as i'm wrapping the series up i'm having to deal with how it's changed and so it's 
turning the ending of the series into a much more bittersweet and tragic thing than I had originally intended. It's working great artistically, but it is painful to write. So you also mentioned that you used to live in a big city and now you are trying to build a house from scratch, essentially. So are you married? Do you have kids or anything? Yeah, I've been with my wife for 20. We've been together 27 years. I think we've no, been married for 25. What? Yeah. 25 years? That Okay. Congrats, yeah, congratulations. I, I met her back in like 1995, I think, or 94. Mm -hmm. and, okay. uh, and then we got hitched in 97. Okay. So however long that is. So um, don't. Don't have any kids, alas, wasn't possible for us, but I've made up for it with uh, dogs and chickens and the neighborhood chickens bears. Chickens are so are... cool. I, I love going to my friend's house and they have chickens. They're so cool. They they're like, look are... at you like you're stupid. And like, he just, they're like, you just feed me. <laughs> yep. They are hilarious. They, they have imprinted on my partner and she, they, they follow her around like ducks. Ay, ay, ay. After the mama duck. You guys have goats? Uh, not yet. That's on. Uh, we had to get water enough to do goats. Uh, so I got a water system set up this year. So next year we should be doing goats. And I'm okay. hoping also a sheep because I love I love sheep. What They're about the dogs? Tasty. How They're long have you had the dogs for? Um, we got uh, the one that's sitting at my feet. We've had for seven years. We picked her up off a uh, at a animal shelter. Mm -hmm. And she was uh, one of those that was trained to be a protection dog, but was too friendly, so was abandoned. Mm -hmm. um, she's a she's a Dutch Shepherd, very great farm dog. She keeps the bear out of camp. It's really nice. Okay. And we just mm -hmm. she's getting long in the tooth, so we just picked up a second uh, uh, Malinois Border Collie mix. Uh, she's mm -hmm. training him to keep the bear away. Okay. So puppy. what? embarked did you have a apartment or house before you went on this adventure to build your own house actually uh yeah um it was uh um we left the bay area because oh god what's happening my lighting situation here you're fine we left we left the bay area because it was getting too expensive and then it started to go downhill so we left at the right time Wound up. Um, what year was that? If you don't mind me asking. Oh God, it was uh, 2014, I think. Okay, so yeah, that was right as everything started getting really bad, actually. Um, uh, so we went to a little town in coastal Oregon that had a colony of about 30 other professional writers, and I basically mm -hmm. went up there to sit at their feet and learn the business end of things because mm -hmm. I wasn't doing all that great in the business end of things, and. Um, we lived in an apartment on the beach for a couple of years. And just as we were thinking about going to buy some land, my parents called and said, help, we need to retire. We don't know how. And that resulted in a six year detour where I found them a house and fixed it up. Um, and uh, <laughs> then we got stuck for COVID. Um, mm -hmm. We bought the place we're at sight unseen from across the country. And then a couple of years ago, we drove over here and discovered it was better than we expected. So. Mm -hmm gotta win so right now you're currently how how far done is the house if you could put it in like percentage range. uh zero. <laughs> oh god <laughs> i'm building all the outbuildings first so i've got a forge building up the building i'm sitting in is mm -hmm. the uh contains the solar ba power battery bank and this is my writing porch it's a heated outdoor space that i do my writing on um mm -hmm. 
then we've got an RV we're living in at the moment, and I've built one shed, and I'm about to build the library uh, starting next week. Next year, I do the shop, and we select the site for the house and start the permitting process. Okay. So, so next, so basically just getting after all the, it's all the the, the kinks. You got to iron out the kinks where you can get Yeah, all you got to make life on. possible before you can hook the house up to it. <laughs> okay. So you're an author of 32 books. So... Mm -hmm. How do you feel about when you like see your work in people's hands? Like, what's the feeling you get? Oh, makes me so happy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what was your it's, first book then? Uh, my first book was, uh, it's actually off the market right now for reasons I'll explain in a second. It was called mm -hmm. Predestination and Other Games of Chance. And I um, released it as a podcast fiction novel first and then a printed mm -hmm. book second. Um, you can still find the podcast at my website if you dig hard enough. We did mm -hmm. full cast audio. We had a composer. We did a lot of fun stuff with that. Mm -hmm. But uh, I got into writing book two in that series, and uh, it's a well, it's a science fiction political thriller centered around the first off the first war between Earth and its off world colonies. Mm -hmm. And I got into writing book two, and I realized that I wasn't sophisticated enough in economics and sociology and geopolitics to write the books I wanted to write. So I pulled it from the market until I could finish the whole series and release it all at once. And I'm now currently 700,000 words into the series. I've got two more books to write. I'm hoping end of next year, maybe a little after that, it'll all be ready, finally. Okay. So after you get all these many books done, this is just one ongoing series, right? Yeah, that's one. On okay. So I, I normally wouldn't do that, but it's because it's all one story instead of like episodes in a TV show. Mm -hmm. I need to have all the continuity in place. Otherwise, I run the risk of I get four books in and then I change something in book five. I can't go back and change it. <laughs> so um, which do you suck. have do you have this um, ending ready for your series? Oh, yeah. yep. like, would would, would you be ending. ready to like end it when oh, yeah. you feel kind of like emotional when you end it actually. Oh yeah. I'm sure I will. It's, it's, <laughs> it, it, it springs from an idea. The first, the first um, attempt I made at writing it, I was 15 and I'm now 45. So it's a story 30 years in the making. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I'm, I'm sure it'll be a big deal. When I what inspired it. you to write the story? Initially, I was uh, a big fan of the film The Hunt for Red October, and the Russian ambassador played by Joss Ackland, uh, the, there was a texture to the character that really fascinated me, and I thought, wouldn't it be fun to center a story around someone like him? Mm -hmm. um, and I had an uncle who was in the uh, State Department, mm -hmm. um, who I once asked uh, when I was a kid, what does it take to be a diplomat? because I thought he was a diplomat. I later realized he was a spy. Um, and he said, well, you have to be able to play poker and chess very well. Everything else you can learn on the job. And so the idea about uh, having that Joss Ackland character and poker and chess as a mechanic for, um, for international gamesmanship really stuck with me. And so I made the Joss Ackland character a poker player named him Joss Kyle and stuck him in the middle of a explosive political situation. Mm. And looking at politics now, I guess, um, you know, things have gotten really crazy. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling very smug because the future history that I laid out in that book, which I picked because it seemed to me the least likely thing at the time, 
turns out to be fairly on point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, would you? Are you a conservative or a liberal or a libertarian um, centrist? I have I have been a liberal, a Republican, a Democrat, a socialist, and mm-hmm. uh, a libertarian. And I'm currently, I, I suppose. My my general bent is kind of anarchist, even though I'm aware that it's not a practicable political yeah. philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I'm more interested in politics as a phenomenon of human culture as opposed to partisan games. Right. So I'll vote for you know whoever seems to me like they're going to be the least ruinous to elect at the moment. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't belong to any party, mm-hmm. and I tend to uh i tend to cherry pick issues i I don't really line up with anybody that i know of because that's how i was initially utilizing politics for the story that i was creating a long long time ago like using Mm -hmm. certain politic elements as like elements of how to influence the story because i i think people have to realize how you grow up is how you'll influence politics in your own book or whatever comic like you're going to create so but people don't want real life politics in there. So whatever politics you actually mm-hmm. like yourself and you think they should apply, you would have to inhi- in- inherently change them up for your story because people don't want a one-to-one comparison of that. And right. if you're, yeah, yeah. you're going to do politics in your story, they'd rather you kind of mention that when you're talking to like law enforcement characters mm-hmm. in your story too. Yeah. Like you said, it's uh, how you grow up because I grew up um auditing classes at a college and auditing mostly history classes my my view into politics is one of a historian i look at i I, i'm interested in the way that politics pushes and is pushed by culture and human history much more so than i'm interested in what laws are getting passed because i just sort of assume based on my historical perspective that they're not going to be good for me no matter what they are There's always going to be a downside in some way for scoundrels to get in and do their rent seeking. So more interesting to me as a kind of ecological discipline. How do you write your villains for your story? Has it been one continual villain or just several groups of villains? Um, and there's different, different villains in different, uh, in different stories. I, with very rare exception, I don't really do villains. I do antagonists. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, in my in my dark fantasy short story series, the Lombard Alchemist Tales, I have villains. But um, in my mystery series and in uh, the big series we've been talking about that isn't on the market yet, um, and in my standalone books and whatnot, I have characters whose interests are utterly opposed to the main characters' interests, but they are rational and understandable from their perspective and Mm -hmm. if they are nefarious in the way they advance those interests that just makes it more interesting to me because most people put in the right circumstances are willing to do very very hinky things in order to serve the greater good so that might my villains tend to often have a greater good in mind and that's part of what makes them scary yeah you're tackling it from a villain's not really bad inherently they're they just have a different way of looking at things based off their circumstances right not exactly um Mm. i try to leave the good and bad type of judgment to the reader um Mm -hmm. 
so when you're when you're doing like uh say star wars or, or big um big mythic archetypal stuff like uh, superhero mm-hmm. stories and whatnot one of the things that makes that work is you have pure villains and pure heroes even if the heroes are flawed and the villains are a little sympathetic mm-hmm. um i find that in life what you have more often is that different people are good or evil in different proportions and um and the two get all mixed up in every individual heart Mm -hmm. and so i this goes into my philosophy of storytelling um it's my view that the purpose of fiction is to provide a kind of virtual reality space for humans to do moral reasoning and to uh, perpet- uh, to do moral reasoning and to perpetuate culture. Mm-hmm. And so what I try to do are set up, um, it, it, in the beginning I did this on purpose and since then it's become kind of automatic after you do so mm-hmm. many books, you know, it's like learning to ride a bike. Um, what I try to do is set up situations where the uh, where the characters are all in varying degrees sympathetic but sometimes the most sympathetic character is the one that is least morally defensible because i want to create a quagmire for the readers so that the readers are forced to instead of sort of taking the author's word for who's good and who's bad and in what degree they have to get involved in the moral puzzle of the story and and reason through what they think and believe and and hopefully that will make the story stick with them longer. Maybe it'll make them come back and read it at a later time in their life when they have a different reaction. And in the big picture, hopefully it will be one, it'll become, my stories will become the, some of those stories that people look back on and they go, you know, I didn't really like the way the author seemed to be taking this, uh, the, the tack the author seemed to be taking in this book, but he really made me think about this issue I care about. Um, you know, whether that's loyalty or honesty or what uh, what makes for ethical deception versus unethical deception or a big issue in a recent uh, book for teenagers. I wrote The Wolf of Venus, which is currently available on Substack at Venus Wolf mm-hmm. uh, at Substack dot com slash Venus Wolf is uh, what it means to take responsibility for your life after you've done something monstrous. Um, I don't like atonement, right? Uh, yeah, not exactly atonement. Atonement's a bit different. Atonement is making amends, but what if you did something you can't make amends for? Oh, you're talking about how do you live with the guilt of a situation you can't fix? Right. So, okay. it, uh, my my wife describes this book as Clockwork Orange meets Fight Club, but but for kids. Um, it starts <laughs> off. It starts off with the main character being involved in a in a race murder. And then running away and joining the mafia because he wants to avoid the cops. And he um, very unintentionally gets involved with someone he later finds out is the father of the man he killed. And that, and um, this, this guy becomes his mentor. And eventually there has to be truth between them because they both know who the other is, but neither of them has ever said it. Um, and the main character's central problem uh, from the beginning when he commits this murder for stupid but understandable reasons, you know, Mm -hmm. an angry young man, very resentful. He's just been 
um, just been beaten up on by another authority figure. He wants to lash out. He's drunk with some friends. They're like, hey, let's go. Let's go get this guy. And it gets out of hand. Mm -hmm. um, young man lashes out like that. What does it take for a boy like that to become a man in a way that takes responsibility for who he has been in a situation where it's not possible to atone for what he has done? Mm. Um, so, so that's that's the kind of stuff I like to play with. Do you think that would inherently in a story make a character feel really guilty? So having that guilt, then what would you do as a author or writer to have them overcome it? Because eventually they would overcome it on a certain storyline part, right? Or would it be something you would kind of drag out and have them, it kind of mold them into be the person that they would be? Um, much more the latter. My my experience with uh, with people who've been put in prison for things and uh, people that I, I trained to be a psychologist at one point. And so I have done a lot of observation and talking to people who've been through severe trauma and who've done horrible things. Um, and I was quite a rowdy kid. I didn't commit any serious <laughs> crimes, but I know what it's like to be swept up in the group and like, Oh, let's go, let's go spray paint that house and let's go yeah. toilet, uh, spin donuts on that lawn. And Oh God, the cops are after us. Um, the, the thing that I've that I've come to believe about guilt is that the bigger, uh, the more reason you have to feel guilty about something, the more creative you're likely to become in finding ways to ignore it. Mm -hmm. um, and it will it becomes an invisible driver of your actions unless and until you have you summon up the courage to face yourself. So that's kind of the arc that this story takes. Would you ever have any religious aspects into your story too? Quite frequently. I am I am not religious myself. I grew up in a very religious environment and I'm very interested in religion, but I don't believe in any religion. But religion is an incredibly important part of the human experience and so there is a lot of um in some in some of my books some of my characters are very religious. Other times I call upon um, biblical allusions, allusions to um, ancient mythology, um, uh, lessons from Buddhism, uh, things like that. And I weave them in because they're part of our cultural heritage. And it's part of what makes humans human. And I kind of see my duty, part of my duty as a writer is to pay forward some of the immense cultural inheritance that I have benefited from. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you also mentioned, like, I saw you on Twitter mentioning, like, Star Wars and leftists and all that stuff, too. So how do you feel that Star Wars has degraded over time as someone who oh, is God. a creator of oh, it's so bad. series? <laughs> oh, it's You start um, with the original well, trilogy when you were younger, right? Yeah, yeah. I grew up on the original trilogy. Um, and I quite liked, I, I thought the prequels were somewhat clumsily executed, but mm -hmm. I quite liked what they did and what they were trying to do. Um, when Disney took it over, there were, they didn't really allow creatives in the room. They were trying with the, uh, rise of Skywalker. They were trying desperately to, uh, cash in. So they had JJ Abrams come in. Who's the king of ripoffs. He's never done an original thing in his life. And his, uh, his cadre of, uh, of 
uh, his colleagues from uh, from the bad robot days, like Akiva mm-hmm. Goldsman and uh, oh, what's his nose that's currently ruining Star Trek um, at Secret Hideout. All of them have a they've got kind of a remix attitude toward culture, which is mm-hmm. rather than understanding things and recapitulating them and recontextualizing them, you just pick things that people will easily recognize so that they get a nostalgia hit. Um, it's kind of like a really, really bad rap remix, everything they do. Mm-hmm. Um, a good rap remix does what Mozart did with uh, some of the uh, children's tunes that he was turning into operas. The bad rap remix does what J.J. Abrams did to Star Wars. Um, right. And after that, the um, it, it went downhill from there because... Uh, Kathleen Kennedy started hiring in people who were much more interested in spreading a message than they were in telling a good story. And one of the tragic things about that is that no matter how ridiculous your message is, if you have a very good story, you can promulgate it. But if you're, no matter how good your message is, if you have a, uh, can I swear on here? Yeah. You're a rumble, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> if you have a shittily executed story, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter how good your message is, it's only going to turn people off. Mm-hmm. And I'm not particularly in simpatico with the messages promulgated by Kennedy and her crew, but I'm much more offended by the clumsiness and the nastiness with which those message were prom- messages were promulgated, totally at the expense of the story totally at the expense of the fandom, completely ruined one of the most fascinating, interesting, evergreen, and profitable IPs hmm. in the modern world. It's a, it's a fucking tragedy. Yeah, and now you have just such this huge divide with Star Wars, too, to the point hmm. where it's almost become very tribal in a lot of these yeah. fandoms, too. I'm pretty sure you've known it and seen it for a while too, where, you know, like, I, I guess when I was a bit younger, when people loved this stuff, they they just really loved it. Cause mm-hmm. it's not even that, that is what all we had. It was more like when it came out, you just appreciated it so much. And if it was not up to your standards, I mean, people got very angry and they said things that they yep. said and they ranted <laughs> obviously, but then you expect just naturally over time when industries kind of evolve and things like technology get a bit better then you should be getting better quality stuff it should start at a baseline and then get better and you look back at movies that have come out like 2000s 2005 random movies you'll probably see at walmart that probably came out they were like the that random action flick that no one cared for are just way better than most of the things we get now like now if you go to a movie theater and you see a good movie you're just like wait that didn't ask for pronoun bullshit or talk about all that other nonsense you know it's really like that's why i think people haven't been going to the theaters as much or actually say consuming entertainment as much because it's such a high percentage of it not being good and it being such a slog to get through that it's just not even worth your time that's people choose to now i you know back many years ago i was like man who feels to read books like that sounds kind of outdated but Maybe I judge books too harshly. That's that's how I look at it now. It's the the um, what what you're seeing is a la- is a um, a shallowing of the cultural uh, of the cultural pool. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it stop me if I get boring. Um, this is one of those things I care a lot about, so I could ramble. Um, that's fine. But 
the thing that makes the thing that makes a story resonant uh there's basically three things one is thematic consistency one is um identifiability and one is mythic depth um thematic consistency a great example of this is star trek 2 the wrath of khan the entire film every single scene is about life death aging and loss it's about and in the end the whole thing ties together it's a film about grief and renewal so that thematic consistency makes it incredibly compelling because even the first time through you don't really know what's going on you sense that you're in capable hands whoever did whoever wrote this script whoever made this movie had something to say and they knew what it was um ironically he didn't know what it was till after it was done but that's another story um the second is mythic depth um the stories that we tell in the west and the the same is true in the east i just don't know their stories nearly as well the stories that we tell in the west all emerge from a very small cluster of ideas that are uh, and experiences that are common to humanity um dealing with death marking time um trying to find trying to navigate between chaos and order trying to find uh to find some kind of moral order in the universe and dealing with predation whether that's from invading armies or from the bear that keeps invading my camp um those are basic universal human experiences that are in Bodied in the myths of ancient Sumer and ancient Greece and ancient Israel, and um, the, what little survives from the Celts and from the uh, from the the Persians and the Arabs in the Middle East, the um, there the the stories that we've been telling ourselves as humans for thousands of years all have certain forms and tropes, and if you grow up steeped in those forms and tropes, whether in the form of the original stories as much as we have them, or in really well-told tales from a generation or two before you, then when you turn your eye towards being creative, you've got something to pull from. And if you then also have a life where you've experienced love, loss, where you've taken risks, um, where you've had a chance to form strong opinions, then the things that you think as an individual can be poured into those story forms and molds that come to us from time immemorial, and they will connect with um, with people that are on the other side of the page or the screen. If you don't have those story forms, then what because those story forms also affect our language and the structure of our thought, if you don't have those story forms in that mythic depth, you don't really have the language that you need to speak to people. So you can shout, but no one's really going to understand or care because you're not connecting with things they recognize. Um, and then the third thing is that we are all humans. And so, um, a story needs to connect with human concerns in some way or another. And the more human concerns it connects with and the more real it feels on that level, the more you can get away with on the level of the fantastical. 
Um, it's very hard to connect with a naked power fantasy like, say, The Force Awakens. Rey doesn't come of age. She doesn't have the maturity, the maturing experience. She doesn't face adversity and fail. Um, and it's the lack of failure that actually makes the story not work. You could have gotten away with how derivative it was if she had a hard time. But the universal ex baseline experience of human life is that it is difficult. And we want to be, all of us want to be more powerful and more efficacious than we are. So the process of going through a story with a character that fails and fails and fails, but still keeps going, and then maybe in the end succeeds, that's something that'll hook us every time, even if the rest of the story is kind of crap. Um, but you leave that element out, and it doesn't matter how good the world building is, or how fancy the special effects are, or how clever the wordplay is, it just won't connect. because power fantasies only ever play to young teenagers because young teenagers want to not be teenagers. They want to be adults. So yeah, power mm -hmm. fantasy is the language of, of children and young teenagers. And after that age, it just doesn't connect anymore. I think what also removes characters like that from ever being, I guess, universally loved, like someone like Luke is, mm -hmm. they just feel purposeless. You know, because even what you just mentioned there, like a teenager wants to be an adult. That's a purpose, though. Yep. You know, the, yep. the character it, Ray specifically lacks a purpose. Like, yeah, when you go she, back and watch this movie. That's, that's true. She doesn't really have a desire other than to get off Jakku. And that happens in the first 10 minutes. Or Daisy Ridley can ride my dick. But, you, you know, well, that's another time for another story for another day. Right. <laughs> but it's one of those things where, you know, the way Luke wanted to save his dad after realizing that he's. It's that's a main character, I guess, trope that you have mentioned. A main character want to make yep. the evilest of person good, which I can find very up and down, give or take which story, mm -hmm. which character, yep. and which property you're talking about. But with Ray specifically, like when you're looking at a character like her, I was trying to like I'm not trying to be a person where I just don't like certain new things just because they're new, but I, but if there's nothing there of substance there, if there's nothing good and tangibly there. It's just bad. And when people yep. say they like Ray or even like characters like Paul and Finn, like, what do you like about them? They're just shallow. Their acting is terrible. Their purpose sucks. They're, there's nothing, there's not even good dialogue with them. Like, no memorable dialogue yep. lines. Remember how, like, like there's bad, really bad movies out there, but there will be like one scene where they'll have yep. like at least a good dialogue piece between them. And you're like, this movie's probably pretty fucking bad, but at least that dialogue thing was pretty cool. Or maybe like a really good song or score plays around them in a harsh moment. Just, Yep. nothing it's just yeah, empty it's, soulless crap yeah it's a weird crossover of uh of the way games get written so games get written so that the characters are blank enough the, especially the player characters are blank enough that the player can step into them and make mm -hmm. them themselves and you get that philosophy transposed into fiction and what you have are characters that are made as generic as possible so that the audience can project themselves onto it. But it doesn't work in fiction, where it does work in gaming. Yeah, where you're talking about people want to basically write characters where they want to insert themselves in, which yep. is so bad. Because that, that would mean that you couldn't have liked anything pre, well, yeah. any television 
or movies ever because first like movies and television started first of all in black and white because they couldn't get mm-hmm. they couldn't render color properly into the medium <laughs> itself initially so you're yeah. just first of all watching black and white characters so you didn't even know what their race was until you i guess you actually mm-hmm. read newspapers back in the day mm-hmm. then when we finally got media where you had color attached to it, like just the aspect of color being inside of media you still saw people not care about if the character was white or black yep. all that stuff we had properties out there with prominent black characters mexicans oh, yeah. chinese people but now people are trying to play revisionist history and think that it was never like that but you can tell that person is just full of shit yep yeah, they, their 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 cultural history is a half inch deep at least the ones that are doing it in earnest there i i think there are a lot of people who are lying in order to try to reconquer space that's already been conquered so that they can feel important yeah and you look at let's say like something like um like dragon ball z was really popular when i was growing mm. up right how could anyone like goku then you can't relate to goku he's a tall asian buff guy you can transform into a super saiyan but people like that character a lot or you use batman for example batman animated series yep. is really popular or michael keaton's version of batman yep. how could you like batman you can't identify with the guy who runs around in a back costume and beats yeah. up criminals at least not on those things but you do identify with his woundedness and his struggles mm-hmm. and his difficulties. And that's how you actually get audience investment in characters. It's not through painting them the right color, giving them the right political attitudes, giving them a tick box background thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I was going to go on a rant about Harry Potter, but I won't because that's why we for our field. Oh, Harry Potter. I mean, uh, given how JK Rowling feels about certain mentally ill groups of people, I mean, that's goes to show you right there is like Hollywood's changed so much to the point where if you're not exactly in this group of people, you're out. Oh, but- no, it wasn't. I was going to go. So the problem with Harry Potter is that Harry is an audience insert character. Um, he discovered he doesn't become special. He discovers that he's already special. And then he doesn't have any real significant difficulty. He has boo type of scares. But through the whole series, Hermione grows as a character, Ron grows as a character, Luna grows as a character. Harry never really grows. He never grows up. He never really matures. He just gets older and plays the part. He's a very blank canvas. And that was a failure in uh, the way Rowling wrote him um, that happened to work very well at the time she released the books, which is a shame one of the great pleasures of those books through the first few is watching her find her feet as a writer. And then I get to book five and I'm like, she's found her feet as a writer, but she's not doing the characters. She's leaving them blank. Hmm. So for Harry Potter, I don't know. You've been with Harry Potter for a long time, haven't you? Uh, I read it in, I first read the books in like 2006, 2007, something like that. What did you think about the movies? Ah, uh, the the first uh, I liked the I thought number three was the best produced. Uh, the first two the first two were fun and watchable. After that, I thought they kind of sucked. <laughs> I didn't I didn't like the way Mike Newell handled the direction at all. I what about like Lord of the Rings? Oh boy, I've got an article on that that I posted on Twitter a while back. I I need to revive it and sell it to a magazine somewhere. Um, so Lord of the Rings, the films were. On one hand, a masterpiece. They they picked all the right talent 
for it. They casted it very well. They had fantastic art direction. The adaptation of the plot was pretty good. I thought they murdered every single character in that adaptation. I thought it was a fucking travesty. When I was watching Two Towers, I had to be held in my seat so that I wouldn't walk out. Um, they, um, In attempting to create relatable drama, they sucked all of the characters of every character. They sucked the maturity and nuance out of every character and gave them teenage style angst um, and teenage style impulse control problems. Um, Frankly, the only character that was done really, really well in that series, apart from Gandalf, was Gollum. Every other character was denuded of subtlety and that really... It didn't ruin it, but it really robbed some of the best stuff from the story, I thought. What about the Hobbit trilogy? Did you like that? Oh, God, I hated that. Couldn't make it through. (laughs) The best adaptation Uh, of The Hobbit I've ever seen was the Rankin-Bass cartoon adaptation, which was highly abbreviated, but they captured the spirit and the mm -hmm. aesthetic and the ideas of the story so well, and it was wonderfully acted. God. So, uh, man, looking at the Rings of Power, what did you feel about that? <laughs> I didn't even bother. That's, didn't even that's bother. a good answer, because <laughs> no one did. Apparently the audience didn't either, because only 37 yeah, percent finished it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I saw, saw, saw the trailer, the, the first trailer that had anything in it, and I'm like, oh my god, they didn't. Oh, this is going to suck. I'm not even going to bother. So... Just looking at how badly those trailers were. Imagine a what, the highest budgeted TV show ever. Yeah, it looks the like trailers some, look so bad. Oh like my bad, god! Bad student <laughs> films, really bad student films of of high school drama productions. It was just awful. I mean, <laughs> what oh. other series did you grow up with that has now just been a shell of what it for, what what it was formerly was? Oh, Star Trek, though that process started back. Are you a Star 90s. Trek fan? Okay. Yeah, no. Um, so Star Trek started going off the rails back when Rick Berman got control of it in season three of The Next Generation. But um, but yeah, J.J. Abrams' reboot of that was just totally destroyed it. It's a terrible, terrible thing. Um, oh, what else? Those are really the only ones that have been rebooted that I was a, that I was a big fan of, I think. Um, I wasn't a big fan of Batman, but Chris Nolan, as much as I hate Chris Nolan as a director, his Batman films were quite good. Um, but you know, I'm not a, not a hardcore fan of Batman, so I don't have a big dog in that race or big dog in that fight. Oh, sorry about that. So a friend that was messaging me, I was like, Hey, I want a show. I'm doing my thing. But, um, looking at like you, I'm pretty sure you've seen all the Iron Age stuff, right? No, no. Okay, I so there's been this I've big seen you push. talking about it, but I don't know what it is. It's basically just a big push of independent creators taking okay. the reins and creating a alternative entertainment, kind of like mm-hmm. oh, if you're oh, you're kind of politically sound. You know, like Ben Shapiro created his own mm-hmm. media company, like the yeah. Daily Wire. So it's basically just kind of like that on a much more independent person to person scale. Okay, so kind of like what uh, Declan Finn is trying to do exactly. with the subversive thing and yeah. all that. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes. So, so yeah, that's why I've been seeing a lot of it. I'm kind of in that orbit, even though yeah, I'm you not would, really well, you'd be like 
pre-Iron Age. You'd be more like technically like Bronze Age <laughs> if you were going that There you far. go. Well, that's certainly <laughs> much more my mentality. So that works. Mm -hmm. So what do you think it takes to be a writer? Like if you could give anyone advice that's going to watch this back in a couple of months or years, uh, actually. <laughs> well, I do have a, a whole podcast devoted to that. It's called The Everyday Novelist at everydaynovelist.com. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I think Hemingway had it right. To be a writer requires one thing. You have to sit at the keyboard and bleed. Hmm. Um, the there's, there, there's two basic aspects to it. One is the acquiring the discipline to finish a project. Very mm -hmm. difficult. That's where most people fail out. They have ideas, and then once they get going on them, they sort of lose enthusiasm for them, and so they move on to other more interesting things. Developing that muscle to stick, to stick through and finish things is really important. And then also the, muscle, also the willingness to hang in and keep doing it, even though it can be, it's usually 10 to 15 years before you see any results out of anything. <laughs> um, but the other thing that's really important is what I call feeding the monster. Um, the creative stew in the back of your head. Um, you need to be feeding it art and ideas that predate you. Mm -hmm. um, stuff from before you were born. Because I mean, it's, it's not just your cultural heritage, because sometimes it can be from a different culture. It's mm -hmm. from people who think differently um human life is very broad and interesting and what we see of it in our western educated industrialized rich and democratic world the moral paradigms we have the value systems we have are very very narrow and often though not always quite shallow mm -hmm. when measured against um how other people have thought and being exposed to how other people think actually does quite a lot to help deepen your own moral worldview, even if it doesn't change it, because it causes you to ask, why do I believe the things I do? Right. What mm -hmm. is, what is this value supposed to serve? Um, it's not just a rule that was handed down from on high that say, for example, children have to go to school from the age of five to the age of 18. That's new. It's actually only a hundred some odd years old mm -hmm. that before you encounter the history of that and how people thought of education before that happened, it's the sort of thing you'd never question. Mm -hmm. Once you encounter that, then you have to start thinking, well, why, what do I think about the way we do it now? Why do I think it's a good idea? Or maybe I've always thought it was a bad idea, but I can never put it into words mm -hmm. by going through, by engaging with ideas of the past, mm. you bring a lot of light and awareness to the present that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get. Um, it's a, a side effect of being very comfortable, very materially comfortable. Um, we don't have to think about the things that make life worth living if we don't want to. And unfortunately, if we don't think about them, it makes life less worth living. But all of the customs that we've inherited at one point or another in the past served a function. They weren't just someone decided to do it this way. It was an aid to survival. It was an aid to national solidarity in war. It was a strategic move to dethrone a political rival by a king 
centuries ago. Um, the reason that none of us marries our fourth cousins very often anymore when it used to be the historic norm is because the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages was annoyed by the fact that the folk religions were persisting because of the clan system. So they thought, well, if we break the backs of the clans, then we can finish evangelizing Europe. So they outlawed marriage to anyone who was closer than a fifth cousin. And over the course of two or three centuries, what was a what was an what was a a papal decree slowly became custom in all of the Christianized tribes, and then that became eventually morality. And one of the weird upshots of that was when you broke the clan system, you created a society of individuals. And suddenly individualism came to the West, which it had never existed before. The West has always been, um, has always had a tradition of independent thinkers, but they were the rare ones and often forced to kill themselves um, and then later lionized. Um, but uh, the clan system of small local governance got trans, where you had a voice, got transformed into the individual should be able to vote for the king. All of that comes from the fact that the Catholic Church was unhappy with its political power in the ninth century. Um, and that changed the way we think about morality about everything. That wasn't a survival move. That was a political move. But boy, has it changed everything about the world. When you, en when you engage ideas of the past, you realize how contingent. Hmm. Hello? It really is precious the current moment is and how unusual it is and that makes it easier to appreciate what you have it makes it easier to criticize what you don't like because you have a depth of thought behind it and it makes life richer so when you're going through all of these like societal problems or constructs that you'd like to look at in your story how do you apply mm -hmm. them through each book though because would it it'd be like when you're writing you have this one big idea that you want to that you want to implement into your story, and then after that, you're thinking like, "Well, how do I implement this going on?" So, how do you like structure to implement all your ideas in each one of your stories without getting the feeling of feeling overloaded? Actually, um, it's uh, the trick is it's like playing jazz, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to doing a piano recital. You do a piano recital, you're memorizing a bunch of stuff and you've got to do it in a certain order. And then you tweak, you do the performance basically in between the notes. When you're doing jazz, you learn a tune. In this case, the tune would be your culture and your storytelling forms so well that you can sit down and hear the first chords and then riff. And you don't color outside the lines, but you paint this glorious sonic picture inside the lines. Um, Storytelling's very much the same. If you've got the rules of story down in your bones, then you can actually just sit at a keyboard and trust that when the, when it comes time to write the next sentence, you'll know mm -hmm. what the right sentence is. Um, takes a little practice to get there, but most of the great writers in history didn't plan their works. They wrote them on the fly and then fixed any problems later on hmm. and that, 
That's why you love George R. R. Martin, don't you? <laughs> oh God, I can't stand George R. R. Martin. Oh. <laughs> he that that guy knows how to write himself into a corner. With oh God, everything. doesn't he ever? And or finish his books. Actually, yep. imagine that you're actually praised for not finishing a book. That's oh, crazy. God. Imagine Good. that with any other artist ever. <laughs> oh yeah, you'd be crucified. Uh, but yet, yeah, uh, Tolkien was one of the unusual ones who was a planner. And the reason he was a planner is because he construct. He was a linguist, and he liked detail work. Um, most of the writers who get remembered across centuries aren't planners so much as they are mm -hmm. um, as they are improvisers. They have a stew of ideas, values, questions, things that piss them off mm -hmm. going on in their heads. They get an idea for a story they want to tell. And it's usually like the kind of idea you can sum up in one sentence. Like um, the Jungle Book. What's the central idea? A kid gets raised by wolves. Right. right. One sentence. Kid raised by wolves, what happens? Which is, by the way, also the premise of Stranger in a Strange Land. It's the Jungle Book done as a science fiction novel. Um then you sit down with the premise and you're like, okay, well, let's play with it. And you just start exploring the implications of that initial idea and you let the momentum take you. And when mm -hmm. you get done, if you have internalized the story structures of your culture very well, when you get done, you'll look back and you'll go, oh my God, I wrote a hero's journey or I wrote a heroine's journey or I wasn't meaning to, but this recapitulates the book of Jonah or whatever it is. Um, because as the story emerges, your mind makes the connections to the forms that it will best fit, and it starts to pour those into the book. So what do you think is lacking in terms of the writing sphere, as you've seen throughout all these many years? Um, the, I think that uh, role-playing gaming has really damaged the way a generation of creatives thinks about how story works. Um, there's a lot of box ticking and character sheets and world building. Um, not a lot of engagement with um, struggle and difficulty that is uh, transformative to the character who is happening. Um, when your primary when your primary engagement with storytelling is through uh, Trixie, not now is through role-playing gaming uh, or through RPGs especially, but also through other sorts of gaming, you tend to, you, you tend to not A, internalize the story forms of your culture and B, you tend to be fairly poor at characterization because you build the characters out of building blocks. Right. Um, and so there's a lot less of, um, of, getting to know the character from their point of view. Instead, you generate a character through their capabilities. Hmm. And that doesn't often lead to satisfying fiction because one of the great things about great characters is that their capabilities grow and change and they're set in a story where their capabilities are not well suited for them. Mm -hmm. um, when you're designing a role-playing game, you want characters who have capabilities that are well suited to the adventure before them which diminishes the difficulty level and uh, attenuates the struggle and thus attenuates reader investment. Hmm. So where did you learn all these concepts from? Would you just hone these in over all these many years, actually? Uh, I'm, I'm a ridiculously voracious con uh, consumer of any interesting idea I run across. Um, I'm actually, 
one of the books I have, uh, it's done. It's currently in layout, and it'll be kickstarting either late this year or early next year. Is called Reclaiming Your Mind, an Autodidact's Bible. And it's 500 pages on everything I've ever learned about learning and how to teach yourself things. Okay. Yeah, because right now you're self-teaching yourself how to build a home or several mm -hmm. things that goes into a home. Would, would, yep. would that include getting a fence, too? Oh, eventually I'll have to build a fence, yeah. Oh my goodness! What are you? You're gonna be a. You're, you're gonna try to have your own farm or something. That's crazy. Oh my goodness! Eventually, you might even have cows. Holy crap! Uh, probably not cows. I don't want to. The we're like 500 feet above the aquifer here, so I don't want to pay to sink a well. But okay. uh, <laughs> so uh, probably not cows. But no, I mean, uh, man, congratulations on all your success so far. You're working on another endeavor now. 32 books. That's crazy. So is there a number of books you just plan on going for or just when this series oh, well, is over? Is that I, done? I just, no, no. I just keep writing. I'm uh, in the middle of three books right now. I've got uh, six or seven that are sitting on the to be published pile. Um, the 32 mm -hmm. is the stuff that's out on the market right now. Um, okay. I just, I like, I really, really enjoy writing. I enjoy literature. I enjoy thinking out loud and if I'm not writing stuff down, I'm just, I'll just be talking to myself. So I may as well, yeah, <laughs> may as well write it down where. How, other how do you go about publishing it? your books though? I know that's a big problem with people. Do you go through a, tra a traditional publisher or you just do it with your own? I, own I just barely missed that boat. I got an offer from a traditional publisher in the last years when that was mm -hmm. a viable career option and I didn't mm -hmm. like the contract terms. So I went my own way. Mm -hmm. So we've built a little publishing company here that uh, publishes my books. I publish audiobooks that I produce from other people, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. so, so looking at just like a lot of the publisher problems people have had taking all the money and stuff, you don't understand there's, not much money to be made in book sales unless it's some huge, massive phenomenon, actually. Like, people will be thinking some of these markets were, like, always this way. Like, they just discovered a gold mine. And it's like, no, it was never this way. Whoever told you that is a liar, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's always been a business of throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, all the art, mm -hmm. all arts businesses are this way. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Ted Sturgeon, the science fiction author, said 99% of everything is crap. And that's true. And it's not always possible at the time of publication to tell when something is crap or something is great. Some things that fail to find an audience during the lifetime of an author take off after they're dead. Um, but uh, it, so publishing uh, anything is a business of doing a lot of it and hoping that some of it catches someone's interest. And that's how publishing companies sustain themselves are on those few books that either generate a small but loyal fan base or take off and become bestsellers. Um, and that's why contract terms are so onerous, because on the rare on the rare occasion that they get a hit, they want to be able to control all of it so they can make as much money back as possible. Mm -hmm. I don't begrudge them that, but I'm not going to let them do it on my back. Yeah, that's the thing. It's you can do that as a practice, but not to me. That's just not how it works. <laughs> Did you ever like uh, see yourself being like at a, at book signings and stuff like well, that? I've, I've done book signings. They're a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. um, Usually, I, have a decent crowd turnout for your books. Actually, um, uh, once or twice. Most of the time, I piggyback with other small time authors, and so between us, we sort of cross pollinate our audiences. Okay. Mm -hmm. Have you been part of a lot of book clubs growing I've up, never, actually? I, uh, oh, growing up, I was part of a lot of book clubs. Yeah, I've never been 
I've never had my books in a book club that I know of. That, but, uh, that's the thing. Maybe you should start your own. There you go. Your own stories. That, see, there you go. And that way you can have your own echo chamber. So that way they can't criticize you at all. You're like, I have my own hive mind of people that will never tell me how oh, I don't. I don't. I, I like it when people criticize me. It's fun. <laughs> oh, God. And I, I think that's where like a lot of the Iron Age authors are not understanding is criticism is just part of the game. It's all oh, yeah. dependent yeah, on no, no. if you if you want to if you want to be out if you want to be out in public you're writing a check for people to piss all over you. That's just the cost of entry. Mm-hmm. Um, if you uh, the the three ways to do, deal with it are to one hide, two mm-hmm. um, grow a pugnacious personality and come to enjoy the conflict, or three be mm-hmm. very very pleasant in public. And ignore it when people shit on you. Um, I've always had a pugnacious personality. I'm the kind of guy who uh, gets in uh, not gets in very acrimonious arguments at parties, and then winds up sitting with the person I was arguing with until five hours after the party is done, having coffee over in the corner because we've discovered we've got something in common, and that's why we were so pissed off in the first place. So. I'm actually just glad that people are taking back and more of like reading anything. Like even if you're reading like comic books or funding mm-hmm. a comic book or whatever, just, yeah. you know, if you thoroughly, I always tell people this, if you thoroughly believe that there is a way you're not getting satisfied from mainstream entertainment, you're yep. going to have to go search out for other avenues of it. Oh, yeah. It's just how it's going to work. You yeah. know, write, write the stuff that you want to read. Because someone else wants to read it too. Maybe if you're lucky, a lot of someone else's do, or maybe it's only the one or two person people. But I tell you, one of my lowest performing books has generated the kind three or four of the kinds of fan letters that I have stuck on the wall. Um, one of them said, "My son hated to read before he read this book, and now he can't get enough to read." Another one was, um, "My son had major behavioral problems." Um, and he read this book and it's inspired him to try to get a handle on them. Um, another one was, uh, I found this book after my husband died and it made my life better and it made me start writing. I mean, those are the kinds of fan mail you live for and you can get them even off a book that doesn't perform very well because it just connects with a few people. So sometimes some books go to the moon, some books sit on the shelf and only get plucked off occasionally. But mm-hmm. it those but, when the people that pluck it off, it can still really impact their lives. And that's a beautiful thing. Also, something that I don't think writers understand, too, just because your book doesn't hit initially doesn't mean it will never hit. There's a good chance right. people always find a way to rediscover things that they missed when they came yep. out. You know, yep. Copyright lasts the life of the author plus 70 years. Your grandchildren may own the copyright when your book hits. <laughs> yeah. But... Explain it to the Friday the, the 13th creators. Oh, God. That is just another tangled web of shit, onion layers to peel back, actually. But yeah. I know you got to get going. Uh, but at, as you said before, you, you usually just are in your own head. So I try to give you enough time to get all your thoughts out there for the people. So there, is there any other concepts and very important concepts you wanted to bring up before we head out, actually? Um, oh, I don't know. Involving writing, right. putting stories together, villains, yeah. pacing. They, oh, pacing's a good one, too. How do you do your pacing in your stories, then? Um, the best way 
this is one of those where I lose people. But the best way to understand pacing is to study classical music. Um, it doesn't have to be old classical music. It can be Gershwin. But the uh, but a symphony that's 10 to 20 minutes long that has several movements and variations on a theme teaches you how the human mind wants to be pulled along. Um, there are certain genres like thriller where the pacing is breathless. Like there's literally no pacing. It's just all at a rapid fire clip. But usually we uh, humans most gravitate towards stories that have that that have rhythms that mimic the flow of life there's excitement and suspense there's release there's excitement and suspense and there's release and and then at the end there's resolution um the key to pacing is to uh, it's very hard to verbalize um as as with say gershwin's rhapsody in blue um, you hook someone at the beginning and you lull them into a dreamlike state and then you start to you start to turn up the tension um, and the uh, you turn up the tension to the point where it's almost unbearable to the characters or to the audience and then you provide something that lets a bit of it off and that something that lets a bit of it off needs to change the game in some kind of way so that all that energy that you've built up can propel you to the next stage of the story. Um, in Rhapsody in Blue, it starts off with that slinky little line on the clarinet that, um, that comes down and stays and twiddles around like a bird for a while, almost on its own. And then the orchestra comes up behind it, playing the same tune, but fuller and more interesting. And then it starts to take on a frenetic cadence so that it reminds you of a construction site in New York in the early 20th century. And then it takes on a pastoral vibe and it gives you sort of a feeling of traveling across the Great Plains. Um, and this, it's the entire, the song is this, the story of the development of America in the early 20th century. And you can almost see it if you close your eyes and lose yourself in that, in that symphony, but you're never bored. It's always pulling you along and occasionally lets you drop completely only to come up from the depths again, from utter silence and take you right up to the heights of the mountains. If you listen to good classical music or uh, rock opera, like uh, oh, the, the obvious one is Stairway to Heaven, but there was this whole genre in the 70s that was big for it. It was called prog rock. Um, some of uh, I'm not familiar with a lot of what's been done musically in the last 10 or 15 years, aside from small niche indie stuff. But you can figure out a lot of how pacing works by listening to music. Because music works by giving you small musical phrases over and over, permutated in different ways, and given to you at different speeds. So it draws you along in something that looks very like the shape of a story. Well, uh, yeah, I think looking at all the stuff you brought up, you know, anyone who's watching this, make sure you actually heat these ideas and you know listen to them actually a lot of people always ask for advice and go yeah <laughs> it's like it's like what well that's oh, the nature right. of advice right you give advice not because anyone's going to follow it but because later you can say i told you so <laughs> <laughs> so 
as I'll, as we wind down, uh, do you have any shout outs you want to give to anyone in particular and anything else you want to say before we head out actually? Uh, oh, that's great. This is, it was great meeting you. I had a yeah. great time. I'd love to do this again if you're ever into it. Yeah. Um, you can find my stuff at jdsawyer.net. Um, my podcast on creativity is at everydaynovelist.com. Um, and I blog on geopolitics and um, cultural change at mm -hmm. unfoldingtheworld.substack. No, sorry, that's the title. It's at jdanielsawyer.substack.com. Um, oh, so many good writers out there. I could shout them all out. Uh, it would take forever. Um, you should check out my friend Mel Todd. She does. Uh, she was originally a listener to Everyday Novelist. She now does urban fantasy of the decidedly non-romantic variety, and she does pretty good with it. She's got an interesting sense of humor. Well, everyone, uh, thank you to Dan for being on for his first time. Can't wait to talk to him again later on in the show. Remember, we, we always do second, third, fourth, five, fifth appearances. You know, no one's Fantastic. ever... No one's ever, you know, kicked off here unless you're just straight up just a flat out piece of shit that I just don't like. Yep. Unless there's one I legitimately just don't like, you can't be on. But I'd let on the homeless man on the streets on my show. Can't do that either because you would have a mic and it's like straight <laughs> shit. So, yeah, you know, I, I want people to understand if you have an issue with something, you know, try and if you can, if you have the resources, try to be that outlet for other people with your same issue as well, you know. And also remember, just in case – I hope people always forget this. Just because it's you, the one that, are, that is doing it, doesn't mean it's going to eventually pop off. You know, everyone has this idea that I have the next best thing since sliced bread. Well, you know, there you everyone go. Everyone else does too. Yeah, I, I, can <laughs> aim on, I can end on this. Uh, capitalism, creativity, and evolution all work by throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall and letting most of it die. Mm -hmm. But if, uh, as Robert Heinlein said, of course the game is rigged. That doesn't mean you shouldn't play. If you don't play, you can't win. Hmm. What was I not? What the heck? Well, wait, what? you were here, what, right? What? I'm yeah, just kidding. I'm I just fucking, <laughs> I was here. I heard everything. <laughs> I heard everything. Guys, don't worry. Okay. It's called entertaining the audience. Oh, wait a minute. There is an audience here. You guys always watch for quality content. But no, um, <laughs> it's one of those things I tell people, you know, just you factor in if you're a YouTuber, you put out like 10 videos, one, maybe two of those might hit. And we're talking hit, we're talking like 30 views. That's how it works. You know, not everything you're going to do is going to hit, but try and always work on thinking about why it didn't hit, honing in your craft and trying to just improve. That's all you can do. If you yep. work towards improvement, I think good things will come. But then again, that goes into like another religious thing, which is like, oh, God will bless you if you have. Well, hey, hey, good I, things. I, I'm not religious at all. And I. I'm firm believer in if you work on quality, good things will come. Even if you don't have success, the struggle of improvement will improve your life in other ways. Hmm. Well, everyone, we'll see you later. Have a great night, everyone, and good night.